The Space God Memoirs. Season 2, Episode 25 Bakibra stood before me atop the half-sunken cube transport in the midst of the Ganadrian marshes. Her bronzed armor was aglow in the light of the rising sun. Her eyes focused on me as she gripped a sword between her hands. She took a step forward, looking about ready to smack me with it. Bakibra appeared entirely real, which was surprising given that she had been dead for a while. Her consciousness hitched onto the back of my mind. What in the green scragging ocean is your problem, Bakibra? I asked. I wasn't going to be intimidated by some voice in my head, corporeal manifestation or no. You are my problem, she responded, the sword vanishing from her hands. I am your problem? Nope. Seems like the opposite. You're the one who distracted me, causing us to get shot down, maybe got all the others killed. I did what was needed, she said, arms crossing over her metal-bound chest. This precious mission of the Nyars is utterly pointless if the planet remains in the Veyer's thrall. The people of Ganadria are clearly suffering. Unlike you, I have some compassion and loyalty to the home that bore me. I'm as loyal as anyone, I answered. Are you certain? While you may have dwelt in Ganadria for some time, I doubt you ever truly saw it as home. You have always struck me as a wanderer, never taking root anywhere, eager to move on to new horizons and new adventures. Scrag it, Bakibra. I still care about this world, its people. Just wasn't the time or the place for an impromptu liberation effort. She harumphed and shook her head. Also, I continued, you've been totally salty since hitching a ride with me, always complaining about how I do things trying to take over in every fight we get into. You were never a fighter, Kef. I didn't have that luxury. No good weapons, no training, no invincible power armor. Bakibra narrowed her eyes at the mention of her armor. Such things had their price, she hissed. A price I paid in full. She glared at me. There was a tension bubbling from within. Anger mixed with regret. Sadness and a touch of self-pity. An image of Prince Ophiro flashed in my vision, his pale skin practically radiant in the rising sunlight, his white hair drifting in the warm swamp breeze. Bakibra had put on that armor to serve her prince, whom she had loved with an intense longing, a longing which could never be fulfilled because that armor took its toll on the body. She would have died in a few years from it had she not died in that testing tower. I let her angst roll off me. Get over it, I said. Your prince was a cold and selfish bastard who wasn't capable of loving anyone but himself. I figured you had processed all that already when we faced him in the afterlife. I did, she stated firmly. And though my thoughts have at times dwelt there, the prince and my old life 
are in the past. Then what's the issue? I do not know if I serve much purpose here as your passenger. At times I feel a prisoner within your mind, as if I am caught in some dream, but not my own. I watch you act, watch you live, but cannot live myself. Ugh, yeah, I can see how that might suck. Kef, I am grateful for what you did for me, for bringing me beyond the barrier of Aruvis and liberating me from a dismal place. But I do not feel that my destiny is to be forever within you, to become absorbed into your ego. I know that my true purpose is in something higher. There was a different side of her now. Positive, hopeful, beaming. A luster on her skin, a glow in her eyes. I got a curious notion then. Bakibra, you believe you should have been the Nyar recruit? Yes, I believe it should have been me. Had the test been fully administered by the Nyar, I would have been the chosen champion. Cocky much? Merely honest. I spent my life training, serving my king and my prince, raised to believe in a strict code of honor, of moral conduct. I even gave my very life for that code, so others might ascend. While I respect you, Kef, I feel that between the two of us, I am more in line with the Nyar virtues. Eh, you're probably right, I said. I was never the brave, righteous hero type. Fitting in with all these do-gooders and high-minded folk hasn't been the easiest for me. Maybe in my place you'd be doing a better job. Still, not sure there's much we can do about it. She nodded in affirmation. Particularly not from here, I concluded, pointing behind her to the mists rising over the steamy swamps. You are correct, she stated. Whatever our collective fates are, we should find a way to remove ourselves from this place. You don't think we should wait here for the others? I truly doubt they would arrive. Really? We were supposed to rendezvous at some known location. Certainly not this one. She shook her head. It would be terrible tactics. The Veyer clearly know where the cube crashed, and it would be the first place they would look for survivors. So why aren't the Veyer here? They are likely busy with your companions, either searching for or fighting the other Nyar. If the others are still alive. Jabir had to have fallen from an even greater height than I did. And I don't know if Z and Demania were able to escape in time. A voice chirped up from inside. Rayleigh's. That's simple enough to check. Just go down there and see if the Akta is gone. Oh yeah, that was actually pretty obvious. Though I had been too tired and agitated to bother thinking to check for the smaller ship. Fine enough, I said out loud, though Rayleigh was all in my head. And Bakiba could probably hear my thoughts too. Seconds later and I felt the subtle sensation of Bakibra sinking back down into my subconscious, her image atop the cube vanishing entirely. Feeling a bit annoyed at myself, I nonetheless shimmied over to the side of the craft where the octahedron would have been docked. There was no visible door that I could open, because just like with most of the Nyar structures, the cube was made of semi-fluid, nanobot-infused metal that would form a door when commanded to. And it wouldn't have mattered much because this side of the ship was a bit more sunken into the swamp anyway, blocking any view of the area. But I quickly realized that the monad was still active here and could tell me if there were any other craft inside the structure. I did a quick scan of the area below, revealing that the docking bay was empty of anything like the octahedron fighter. It also told me that the area did not contain any life forms other than a few native beings that had already found their way inside. 
I let out a sigh of relief, feeling a tightness in my chest loosening. At least the girls had gotten away. I didn't have to think of Z being dead because of me. But what to do? I sat back down on the rim of the cube, my feet dangling over the edge as I looked eastward this time, across a mushy landscape where green and blue pools were split by grassy patches and mounds of muck. I figured I should be trying to locate the others, now that I knew at least two were probably alive, but I hadn't the slightest idea as to how. Since telepathy was apparently a way to get instantly located by the bad guys, I wondered if there was a way to track my friends using the monad. Since clearly the Vare couldn't detect me simply accessing the network. Just then, my eyes were pulled to movement from above, in the skies. One of the Vigle, its crab-like form coasting on its wings, moving from east to west. I reactively fell onto my back, projecting the Atra around myself as I tried to think thoughts of smallness. I knew I didn't have enough Atra to actually turn myself invisible, but maybe I could become less noticeable. It might have worked as the Vigle passed by, not immediately landing. But an instant later and I saw another one, plus an avian-styled aircraft, about three times its size, a Hualath per the monad, all coasting overhead, surveying the area. Scrag. They might not have noticed me, but they'd for sure see the huge crashed ship. The moment they were all out of sight, I found a relatively dry patch of ground below and lowered myself off the cube, touching down on the spongy marshland floor. I quickly made the decision to head south, seeing some muddy pathways I could take between the deeper lakes. That way would eventually take me out of the marshes. I put a small portion of my focus into maintaining a stealth mind, and the majority of it on pushing forward, through the marshes. At first I moved methodically, careful not to make much noise as I crept across the drier paths, avoiding the waters. But I heard my pace as I got out of the range of the mud splatter where the cube had crashed. The Vair ships once more passed overhead, this time a good deal lower. Ahead grew a patch of thick grasses, clustered around one of the lakes. I pushed my way between them, hoping the dense stalks could provide a bit of cover. Traipsing through the tall, reedy grasses, some of the stalks twisted in my direction, eye-like protrusions at their tips seeming to examine me. Weird. Hopefully they weren't spying for the Vair like some kind of organic cameras. Whatever the case was, I didn't tarry among them. Soon I emerged on the shore of an expansive mere, its waters shallow and blue-green in hue. I paused, the algae-covered lake blocking my progress. It'd take miles of walking to get around this thing. It wasn't deep, and I would have just tried wading through it, but not here. I had already seen the nastiness this place had to offer, and didn't want to find out firsthand what ickies dwelt in those waters. But there were ways across, little strips of muddy but walkable land that I could use, or grass-covered tufts that could be seen sticking up out of the murk. So I stepped forward and started to balance my way across tiny strips of spongy land, intent on getting as far as I could from that crash site. As I peeked to my sides, I could sometimes see little bubbles coming to the opaque surface from below, or hints of something twisting just beneath the waters. I kept on going. Soon the bits of land had mostly vanished, and I took my first steps onto the mounds of clustered vegetation that rose up out of the murky pools. They seemed a bit unstable, but I kept going, 
The opposite shore was just a few long strides away, where the remains of a tree trunk lay flat upon the ground. I jumped, landing on both feet atop the final earthy tuft. It was strangely wobbly, more than the others. A horrid gurgling sensation came from beneath my feet. There lay a quickly opening orifice, ringed in ropey feelers that no longer looked at all like marsh grass. I leapt forward again, and only with my atra-enhanced reflexes was I able to push myself away from the tendrils groping at my feet, hurling my body onto the relatively dry ground beyond. I heard a sudden sucking sensation as the mouth closed, and then sunk back down into the waters with a splash. Ugh and yuck. This place was totally scragged, even for a Ruvis. I took a breath of moist, worm, rotten-tasting air, sweat covering my body, plopped my ass down on the log, and let out a huge groan. Placing my face in my hands, I rubbed the salty sweat out of my eyes. Then I sensed it, a strange tug in the back of my thoughts, like the voices of my passengers, but different. What was going on? I tried to focus on it, pushing my mind deeper into the monadic pathways that lay just beneath my surface awareness. Again, that tug, repeating, like something was out there, or in there, trying to get my attention. I delved into the pathways until that pattern grew more distinct, forming into something like a voice. Jabir, injured, there found me, northeastern marshes, black pillar, do not respond. The briefly voiced message stopped. I could hear it in the distance, repeating but growing softer each time, as if fading. Zerothra had said not to use telepathy here, but I suppose if the Vare had already found Jabir, then he was in no further danger of being discovered. So he had placed a message that anyone could listen to, including the bad guys, but so what? I wasn't such a dugga that I would actually respond. I wiped a bit more sweat from my forehead and stood, opening my eyes. I had to find Jabir. That was my decision. Find him, then locate the others. That old lizard was tail-deep in trouble, and it was sort of my fault. Besides, I liked the guy. Among the Nyar's virtue-mongering wise folk, he was probably the most relatable, even if he looked nothing like me. Of course, finding him meant going in the opposite direction of where I had been headed. I wasn't going to like navigating this shithole, but I was still going to do it. Peeking back at the gross lake I had just crossed, I already knew I wasn't going to cross it again. So I headed east along its shores, leaving whatever horrifying creatures that dwelt within to themselves. With carnivorous water suckers on my left, and more of those grabber vine trees on my right, I tried to look only forward and not at the throbbing weirdness all around me. It was hard to keep a steady course in any direction as the swamp offered no straight pathways. I didn't want to lose my bearings in a place like this. It would be a nasty locale to get lost in, but I quickly realized that that wouldn't happen. The monad. I stopped, gazing inward as I stood at the edge of a reed patch, whose eyeball stalks kept turning my way. The monadic network had a catalog of pretty much everything. When I thought about the idea, I instantly knew what direction was north. More than that, as I concentrated, I could see a map of the entire area in my mind. The lakes and even bigger trees visible from an overhead view. Just like in that maze test, said Rayleigh. Gotta remember that all these functions are built into your mind now. 
I grunted an acknowledgement. It was pretty useful. As I glanced over the mental map, I started to notice different gradients of terrain. I was pretty close to the center of the swampy valley. My map region awash with greens, blues, and some browns, with the marshland getting drier and stonier the further north you got. At the far eastern end of the marshes, just before they hit some higher terrain, things looked uh, different. Shades of murky purple-gray amid the blues and greens. Shapes that looked oddly like structures. That's probably where Jabir was. If there was a black pillar, it'd be there. In less than an hour, I'd followed the curving shore of the lake eastward, until I was able to spot a walkable path going between some smaller trees. Careful to avoid any of their probing limbs, I continued on my journey. Soon I found myself going northeast, in the direction of what I guessed to be some Vare base, doing my best to split my attention between the mental mini-map, my stealth mind, and actual walking. I noticed that the trees were becoming less frequent the farther I traveled, replaced by squat and limp bushes that looked rubbery and slimy, with little bulbs on the ends of their green branches. The ground started to feel even more squicky, the spongy mud replaced by something rubbery, feeling almost fleshy at times. The semi-sweet aroma that I'd smelt earlier was gradually filtered out by something a tad nastier, like a rotten animal carcass that had a strangely chemical tinge to it. The waters were the worst for the ick factor. The occasional bubbles floated to the surface from below the shallow pools, where hundreds of tightly packed mouthy things clung to the bottom, throbbing and pulsing as they took in the nutrients to the pond through their circular orifices. Not much on Aruvis had ever made me shudder, but the sight of those things got my skin crawling. Like that sucker that had almost grabbed me at the other lake. I wondered if they were related. Hours passed as I trudged through that squishy terrain. My senses assailed by the sheer alienness of it all. Eventually, I arrived at that spot on the map where the land appeared to change. There, bulging mounds of gray matter pushed up out of the waters. Not mounds of earth, but of something else. All wrinkly and throbbing, covered in veins and tiny orifices. No, this junk wasn't native to Aruvis. Even its atra was different. Thick, rich, and oozing, tinged with fear and with pain. Yup, I could actually feel it, sense those emotions embedded in it. This was on purpose. Those mounds acted as living containers for a very specific type of atra. Is this the their plan for Aruvis? As I moved further eastward, the land grew further warped, those mouth-infested pools getting more common, the land starting to look like those mounds, gray tinged with a muddy purple, rippling like muscles, moving like flesh as I walked across it. I was super careful where I stepped. The idea of getting sucked down and eaten by this living land was not something I savored. Then they appeared on the edge of my vision, what I guessed to be buildings, the largest one was shaped like half an onion, of a black, scaly material. Surrounding it were three others of similar construction, but smaller and ovoid. Making sure to keep my stealth mind up, I crept closer. Soon I could see them in more detail. The big building had what looked like a pump connected to its side, leading into a nearby water pool. 
As I got closer, I could hear it emitting a low-frequency hum. And yeah, the Veyer were here. Six of their Fizar stood about the compound, their crimson-red outfits contrasting with the colors of the area, each armed with those pikes that could double as blasters. I fell into a crouch, hoping my stealth mind would keep me unnoticed as I hid partly behind a low-lying bush. From there, I watched the Veyer warriors go about their business, a few of them patrolling the perimeter of the area, while the others stood in front of the big building's arched entryway. One of them would periodically walk behind the onion-shaped dome, then return a few minutes later and say something indiscernible to another soldier at the door. I quickly deduced that that's where I needed to be. Maybe they were hiding Jabir back there. I began moving, keeping to my stealth mind, the sound of my footsteps muffled by the constant low hum of whatever they were pumping here. Arriving at the building's rear, I could hear the pump's sound growing louder. My vision was pulled to a strange sight, the back wall of the domed building. The length of the wall formed into a recessed alcove, where rows of empty red armor stood, as if in a line. Below them, the wall continued into a shallow pool. I stopped, hearing the pumping intensify into a gurgling sound, and watched as pink goo began to trickle from open pipes above, directly into the armored shells, until it filled each one. From somewhere inside the structure, beams of light shot out, directly into the slime-filled shells in a steady pattern. Seconds later, the wall shifted like a conveyor belt, pulling the red armor out of sight and into the building itself. Well, that was scragged, I told myself. Was this how the Fizar were made? I imagined the Veyer were drawing nutrients from the life forms here, processing it into these slime mold cultures, and then programming them as their disposable warriors using Atra extracted from Aruvis. The wall of the alcove moved again, revealing more sets of empty armor ready to be filled. I looked away. Watching the Vare build their slimers wasn't going to help me find Jabir. I kept moving, creeping away from the structure. Then I saw it, the black pillar from Jabir's message. It stood a distance behind the big building, overlooking a series of lakes. It was roughly pillar-shaped, but more resembled a cylinder of inky gelatin, rising to twice my height, its surface solid but constantly undulating. Inset within that oozy pillar was Jabir, his arms, legs, and tail outside of the goo, his head half sticking out, his long tongue limp. He looked at me with bulging eyes, not speaking, possibly paralyzed. I scanned the area, seeing how close each of the Vare were and wondering just how in the scrag I was going to get Jabir out of there. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Space God Memoirs. Space God is written, performed, and produced by A.M. Arctos. Original musical score by Alpha Colors. Various sound effects created by Industrial Strength Records Incorporated. Please support this podcast by following, rating, and sharing on your favorite social media site. For further info on Space God, its creator, and various other opinions, musings, and thoughts, go to www.spacegodmemoirs.com or follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. If you enjoyed the Space God Memoirs, please consider supporting us by becoming a patron. Check out the Patreon link in our description to learn more.